Hi, everyone. Just a quick warning before we start the show. This episode is about sex trafficking. We'll talk about some sensitive topics. So if that's something you want to skip, please do. Good morning, Mr. Chairman and esteemed members of the subcommittee. My name is Nicole S., and I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today and represent myself and my family. In just a few short months, our American dream would be exchanged for a third world nightmare and lead us to question everything. Nicole was testifying before a subcommittee of the U.S. Senate's Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs. She was describing the most harrowing experience every parent hopes never to have. In 2010, she had gone to pick up her daughter from high school track practice, but she wasn't there and couldn't be located. For 108 days, Nicole and her husband what had happened until they received a message from law enforcement. Their teenage daughter had run away, and what the police sent Nicole was shocking and horrifying. It was a screenshot from a website called Backpage. Her daughter was being sold for sex online. We in the United States tend to think of sex trafficking as a problem of developing countries. But here is Nicole, sitting before our members of the United States Senate, reliving her horror and demanding action. On this episode of Bending the Ark, human trafficking here in the United States. We compare the myth and Hollywood plotlines to reality, and we meet some of the people trying to understand it and bring it to an end. Welcome back to Bending the Ark, the podcast from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. I'm your host, Dan Shraglia. Today, we're exploring a topic that we, as a country, have largely been happy to ignore, human trafficking, particularly domestic sex trafficking in the United States. There are, generally speaking, two ways in which the public is exposed to even the existence of domestic sex trafficking. One is through the occasional headline or news story about an especially observant or astute flight attendant or train conductor who notices something fishy or receives a carefully passed note from a victim and calls the police. The other, and really the more common way, is through Hollywood, maybe action thrillers like the Taken series or legal procedurals like Law & Order, Special Victims Unit. But these, as fiction, are unabashedly unrealistic. So our producer, Blanca Castro, and I have been speaking with researchers, advocates, and service providers to get a sense of what's known about sex trafficking. Blanca is a master's student here at Penn and has experience working with children involved in the child welfare system and seeing firsthand how community and social supports are important in adolescent development. So Blanca, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what trafficking entails, just that term. It's not necessarily some taken-style moment where people are being grabbed off the street, hauled into a van, and sent to another country. Before we move on, I do want to say that I do love my SVU reruns, and Olivia Benson is wonderful. I have no idea who that is. But you're absolutely right. Trafficking doesn't usually involve a dramatic abduction and Liam Neeson breaking down a door. There are really two forms of human trafficking according to the federal law sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And if you don't look too deeply, they look remarkably similar to legal activities like stripping or pornography. So to understand these distinctions a little more clearly, we talked to Jane Biggleson, Vice President of Advocacy of the Anti-Human Trafficking Initiatives of Covenant House International to discuss the federal definition further. 
Covenant House is an international organization that does amazing work for more than a million homeless, runaway, and trafficked young people. The United States federal definition of human trafficking includes anybody who's, let's talk sex trafficking first, anybody who's engaged in a commercial sex act. So that could be stripping, prostitution, pornography, anything where there's a sex act traded for something for profit. So that's commercial sex. But what changes something from commercial sex to human trafficking, or under federal law, what they call a severe form of human trafficking, is the introduction of force, fraud, or coercion. So it's basically non-consensual or unwilling participation in commercial sex. And that same principle applies to labor trafficking. However, it's a little different when someone is under 18. You can still work as long as you have a work permit, like a 16-year-old working at the mall for the summer. But in sex trafficking under federal law, consent can't be given when you're under 18, meaning there's no such thing as a child prostitute. And that was certainly not kind of my full understanding about human trafficking here before I started looking into this. And I think I found plenty of other people who are generally well-informed that had the same misconceptions. The available, although limited, public polling on the topic kind of backs me up on this. A poll of registered voters in Illinois from the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at the Southern Illinois University in Carbondale found that about half or 51% either disagreed or strongly disagreed with the statement that human trafficking affects their community, even though Illinois ranks eighth in the country for human trafficking offenses. And Illinois is not alone in this chasm between perception and reality. So Covenant House commissioned a study of human trafficking in 13 U.S. cities with Loyola University's Modern Slavery Research Project and the University of Pennsylvania's Field Center for Children's Policy, Practice, and Research. Blanca, you dug into the Field Center's piece of this. Tell me a little bit more about it. So yeah, Penn's Field Center interviewed close to 300 homeless youth in three cities, Philadelphia, Phoenix, and Washington, D.C., to better understand the prevalence of human trafficking. So meaning sex trafficking and or labor trafficking and the major risk factors as well as psychological and physical consequences. So far, that's what Loyola did as well. But what the Field Center added was a focus on their maltreatment as children and experiences in the child welfare system. So we spoke to the Field Center's executive director, Debbie Schilling-Wolf, who emphasized the lack of data on the topic. There are a lot of numbers that are out there citing the prevalence of trafficking, but there are very few good numbers that are out there. And adding to that, misidentification and again, definitional ambiguity are also seen as barriers to why reliable data is hard to come by. There is a lot of a misunderstanding when it comes to the issue of sex trafficking, which becomes a huge issue for policymakers and practitioners who are trying to design programs and allocate funding for vulnerable youth who will and who have been sex trafficked. So it seems like a real challenge here is finding people that have been sex trafficked or even people that are kind of at higher risk. We're dealing with a largely hidden population. So how do you even begin to estimate this? We really are. And this is something that Debbie acknowledged during our conversation and why partnering with Covenant House and other homeless service providers is critical. And you might also wonder, why focus on homeless youth? Which is a fair question. There is research out there identifying homelessness as an important risk factor among young people who have been victimized, where they participate in survival sex. 
which means exchanging sex for essential goods, like food and shelter. Another thing to point out is that homeless youth are, to put it plainly, vulnerable, and Jane further describes what these vulnerabilities can look like. It's a lot easier for a pimp to exploit someone who doesn't have a family who's going to come looking for them, someone who's not going to call the police or the FBI. It's also a lot easier for an exploiter to control someone who doesn't, hasn't had basic love and affection in the past and is also lacking material and financial support. That puts homeless youth up there as one of the number one targets of pimps and traffickers. They're looking for people with all sorts of vulnerabilities. You mentioned base identification and definitional ambiguity earlier. So I imagine that makes it really hard to ask a homeless person were you sex trafficked? Because they're probably not going to know what that means. A homeless youth probably isn't going to be familiar with the nuances of federal legal definitions. So how do you even measure sex trafficking rates? Yeah, Dan, that's a good question. Many youth don't even know they have been trafficked or not. So the interviewer used a screening tool called the Human Trafficking Interview and Assessment Measure, thanks to Fordham University in New York City. And it is designed to detect and identify victims of human trafficking. So the research team focused their questions on asking participants about their work experience. They didn't ask where you traffic, but asked them more about their experiences with sometimes probing questions, and then went back to see if their answers fit the definition of trafficking. And one more point before we get to the results. I have to imagine it's extremely challenging for homeless youth to talk about these experiences. Even for the people that weren't trafficked, they must have faced extraordinary challenges that brought them onto the streets and into shelters. So how did the researchers approach these youth and then get them to open up? Absolutely. It's definitely a talent, which I've figured out being in school for social work. It takes practice. Young people might be reluctant to disclose this part of their lives. Many of them have been through some form of hell. A large part of the job of the interviewer is to make sure that these kids feel comfortable talking about their experiences that they may wish to forget. Here's how Debbie said they confronted that. It was really interesting. Um, The young people were very eager to talk, tell their stories. Many of them said they had not shared these experiences with anyone before. We provided them with complete anonymity. We were not told their names. We had no information on their backgrounds. We didn't have access to their records. So that they knew that we we wouldn't be sharing information with with anyone else that they could tell us uh, they could tell us their stories with complete confidentiality and that they would be safe and protected we also made sure that there was a counselor available to provide them support or whatever help they needed if the interview triggered any emotional response that we felt needed support many of these youth may have been asked the question tell me about yourself and tell me what you've experienced. So this became both an empowering and healing process for them. For many of them, this is one of the first experiences they had where people wanted to hear what they said and they were empowered to be experts on their own lives, on their own experiences. And that was very powerful for them. And that approach is pretty common. So I've done quite a bit of work on veteran homelessness. When we're trying to figure out how many people are homeless veterans, we don't say, are you a veteran? Because many won't think of themselves as veterans, even though they meet the definition. Anyway, what did they find? 
So I'll just let Debbie share findings herself. We found, sadly, that approximately one out of five homeless youth that we interviewed had reported that they had a history of human trafficking, according to the federal definitions. We found that 17% of the young people we interviewed had been victims of sex trafficking. 14% we interviewed engaged in what is referred to as survival sex. And I just want to highlight those findings are pretty consistent across the three cities and with the other 10 cities studied by Covenant House with the Modern Slavery Research Project. That's really important, especially because this is a convenient sample from a single network of providers. So researchers might raise red flags if their rates in this study were wildly different between Philadelphia and DC, for example. And that they varied only a little, even when other researchers conducted the interviews and analyses, suggests that the results are sound. Now, were there demographic characteristics that kind of indicated increased risk, maybe race or gender or sexual orientation? So women and Latinx were slightly more at risk for being trafficked than their peers. But the biggest risk factor was being a member of the LGBT population. 60% of transgender participants and nearly half or 12 of the 26 youth who were identified as bisexual had been trafficked. Those are rates two to three times higher than we saw for the rest of the participants. These youth might have been kicked out of their homes and rejected by their families due to their sexual orientation or gender identity. But one of the biggest challenges is finding a job that would hire them. Jane shares her experience working with the clients who have experienced this. I've seen with a lot of the trans young young people that I work with that there's a feeling that no legitimate employer will hire them. So if someone can't get a, a real job, if they've gone on, you know, job after interview after job interview and have not gotten it because of the fact that they're trans, it's very demoralizing and it's it's tempting to turn to commercial commercial sex. I vividly remember one someone who told me who when she was 17, she was living on the street corner and wanted a job. She was hungry. The one place that was willing to hire her and actually liked that she didn't have an address or a high school diploma was the strip club. And stripping, uh, first of all, it was already trafficking because she was 17 and therefore underage. But also, I don't remember if it was the strip club owner or one of the clients put a knife to her throat and said, now, you know, now you're mine, and forced her into prostitution. So in addition to those demographic characteristics, it also seems like education, or really a lack of education, was a big risk factor. So being connected to school seems to play a role here. 67% of sex traffic victims did not graduate from high school. But it's less about the credential and more about the supportive services and the social network. One of the things we heard from the conversations with Jane and Debbie, and you hear in nearly every story from a trafficked youth, is about how traffickers prey on youth who are already isolated from friends and family. Essentially, if you're in a structured system and you're seeing supportive friends every day, you're less vulnerable to being trafficked. So you mentioned that social isolation that traffickers exploit. And that brings me to the circumstances that might have led someone into what I've heard trafficking victims refer to as the life. Is there a typical path or a set of experiences for someone who becomes a trafficking victim? So every victim and survivor story is different. 
imagine a young person innocently falling in love after running away from home. What is commonly seen in these relationships is the people they end up falling in love with eventually become their pimps. There are also stories we have heard of 14-year-old girls being promised modeling jobs across the country, and these so-called agents end up paying for their flight to Florida or something. Only then do they find out that the modeling gig is actually child pornography. However, there are common themes, as Jane laid out. Time and time again, is young people who've told me, you know, I, I usually I work directly with survivors, and we get into conversations about what what could have prevented this. And a lot of times, they tell me how the moment that they became home, homeless, there was a pimp waiting to pounce, being like, "Where are you going to go? Why don't you come with me?" Um, uh, the youth shelters across this nation are full; they're at full capacity. Pimps and exploiters know that um, and will tell young people, you know, where are you going to go? Why don't you come with me? And we saw that in the data. More than 60% of sex trafficking victims were approached for sex while they were homeless. And of them, 41% were approached for paid sex on their very first night of homelessness. I also think there's some perception that the bulk of sex trafficking happens during kind of major events like sports drafts or the Super Bowl or some big political convention, and through the internet. Did that match up with what this study found? In part, only one youth mentioned a trafficking experience that had anything to do with a major event like that. So there really wasn't any connection here. But the internet was a pretty common way for youth to be sold. 44% of the youth who were trafficked were the subject of an online ad, and about half of them were underage at the time the ad was placed. Backpage.com, the website Nicole mentioned in her testimony at the top of the episode, was the most frequent poster of those ads. Their involvement and really facilitation of the sex trade and sex trafficking specifically is a subject of a documentary available on Netflix called I Am Jane Doe and was behind some legislation that we'll touch on later called the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act that hold websites accountable when they knowingly post ads for people being trafficked. One thing I was particularly struck by was the exorbitant rate of involvement in the child welfare system and the kinds of abuses these kids faced growing up. Not that it's really surprising. You would expect youth who are homeless and trafficked to have experienced a whole slew of difficulties in their early years. But especially really now as a parent, it's difficult and horrifying to read those stories. Yeah, Debbie mentioned in her interview that trafficking is just one of a series of traumatic events in these kids' lives. In the study, they found that 95% of those who were sex trafficked had a history of child maltreatment with sexual and physical abuse being the most frequent type. So we have a population of young people who are being harmed from their early in their childhood who never felt protected didn't feel like adults could protect them, they would hurt them, and other adults did nothing to help protect them. So this is, these are the experiences that they're bringing into their emancipation um, into adulthood and their transition into adulthood. How can they expect to trust other adults? So this is a real, that's a really important factor that we discovered that we, we think has, has really strong implications. 
These people harming them tend to be people close to them, like parents or siblings. I've seen this often in the clients that I have worked with in the past, where it led to a deep desire for control and autonomy, stunting their overall developmental growth, but also causing inability to reach developmental milestones. Many youth also share their experiences being involved in the child welfare system, with the report showing 41% of those who were sex trafficked had at least one out-of-home placement at some point in their lives, and many experienced frequent moves. This was a common occurrence I saw in my previous job where the lack of permanency and the ability to make secure attachments adversely affected the child's trajectory into a safe and healthy future. Many, many of them have not had stability of either a place to live or people to live with to care for them. So what else could we anticipate would happen to them when they all of a sudden are on their own and need to care for themselves? That point is essentially critical in the context of another question it seems like they asked the youth, which was whether or not they had a caring or supportive adult in their lives. Debbie and her team found that youth who were sex trafficked were much less likely by 15 percentage points to have a caring adult in their lives when they were trafficked. In my work in the foster care system, many youth frequently spoke of feeling like they didn't belong in the family or being treated differently. And that feeling of being unwanted and rejected by the people who should be loving them increases their likelihood of maladaptive behaviors down the line. In your episode, Dan, on the multiple levels of violence, Dr. Kaylin Flynn talked about how youth she spoke with internalized negative perceptions about themselves, that they accepted these myths as part of their identity. That's what's happening here, too. These kids are, in many cases, being forced away by their families, and they're finding comfort in places and with people they might otherwise avoid. In fact, many youth have mentioned that increased presence of caring and supportive adults as the one thing that would have been influential in preventing their involvement in trafficking. So let's transition to what we're doing at a policy level to both help people that are sex trafficking survivors and to prosecute the people doing the trafficking. Let's start with how we're helping victims, which through policy is done through something called safe harbor legislation. So safe harbor legislation is twofold. First, it prevents minors from being prosecuted for prostitution. Second, it directs juvenile sex trafficking victims to non-punitive specialized services. Remember what Jane said earlier, that there's no such thing as a child prostitute. This codifies that and ensures that these people that are themselves victims are not being punished further by the criminal justice system. These laws are so important to help sex traffic victims because it protects victims and survivors from criminalization and provides access to specialized services. Currently, 34 states have passed these laws, and you can find a link to that list in our show notes. And now let's move on to how we're prosecuting offenders. So there are a couple laws in the books on the federal level, the cornerstone of which is the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. It was originally passed in 2000 with subsequent reauthorizations that have strengthened the bill. Most importantly, TVPA established human trafficking as a federal offense. 
states that traffickers can be prosecuted through RICO, which is often used to prosecute organized crime groups like gangs. TVPA also created federal interagency groups to monitor the extent of human trafficking in the United States, creates pilot programs to prevent human trafficking, and requires that the Attorney General report on what the Justice Department is doing to prevent trafficking. There are a few other laws that also apply, but that's the main one. The other piece I want to touch on quickly here is something called FOSTA and SESTA, which you mentioned earlier, the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act. This topic is too big to cover. It's only part of an episode. So we'll do a whole episode on this down the line. Uh, But there's a lot of controversy about it, so I want to bring it up. And for now, I'll refer you to an episode of the Reply All podcast uh, called No Safe Harbor, which covered it fairly well. The FOSTA and SESTA legislation was passed uh, just recently, just earlier in 2018, by Congress and signed by the president. It was a change to the Communications Decency Act, which governs how we regulate the Internet. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, or CDA, essentially states that websites are not responsible for the content posted by third parties. So if I threaten someone on Facebook, for example, the authorities come after me, not Facebook. FOSTA and SESTA tweak this, saying that those websites like Backpage can be held liable when they are knowingly promoting and facilitating sex trafficking. There has been a mixed response to this legislation. Many organizations that serve sex traffic victims, like Covenant House, see this as a victory. They see a group like Backpage profiting off of the trafficking of minors, finally being taken to task. Advocates for sex workers' rights see this as a safety concern. Sex workers use websites like Backpage and Craigslist to find and screen potential clients. Without being able to do that, many have had to go back to pimps and streetwalking, which advocates argue is far more dangerous. This is a significant unintended consequence, and as more time passes, since the law was passed, we'll have a better sense of its impact on both sex trafficking and sex workers. Okay, and for the people that are listening to this, what can they do? There's so much they can do. One thing is as simple as providing love and mentorship to vulnerable young people in their community who don't feel loved and supported. Our listeners can support Covenant House, Polaris Project, and Urban Light, long-standing organizations that have been supporting victims and survivors of sex trafficking. Also, spreading awareness and education about how prevalent trafficking actually is. Lastly, the National Trafficking Hotline is... 1-888-373-7888. That's 1-888-373-7888. If you or someone you know might be a victim of human trafficking. Thanks, Blanca. For those of you that have heard all three episodes we've put out, you're starting to see a trend in these calls to action. Remember what Alana and Kaylin talked about in her episode on violence. The small acts can be powerful. If just you, just once can comfort a vulnerable teenager on the brink of homelessness or call the trafficking hotline for someone in danger, you're making a real difference for that person. And when those actions are replicated, they're undertaken by lots of people, by whole communities, we see change on a global scale. I don't think it's realistic for most people to go down to Capitol Hill every week to lobby, lead a letter writing campaign to their legislators, or build a new program to prevent human trafficking. But enough people help just one kid each or a volunteer program serving these youth, you'll see change across the country. 
That's all for this episode of Bending the Arc. Go to our website, www.sp2, that's the number two, dot U-P-E-N-N dot E-D-U slash Bending the Arc for more information about human trafficking, the organizations we mentioned, and how you can get involved. And you can subscribe and find back episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Send us an email with your thoughts on the episode or a topic you'd like to see covered at bendingthearc at sp2.upenn.edu. This episode was produced by myself, Blanca Castro, Emily Berkowitz, and Alana Peck. And thank you to Debbie Schilling-Wolf of the Field Center and Jane Bagelson, David Howard, and Lori Maloney of Covenant House for helping us navigate this complex topic. We'll be back with a new episode at the end of the month. Bye-bye for now.